Good morning. morning. I ask the Lord's blessing upon all of us today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Welcome. It's a blessing being together and sharing with you today as we continue the series of soul keeping, uh, taken primarily from John Ortberg's book, Soul Keeping. And we ask that the Lord be exalted. May he challenge and encourage and rescue us this day and every day. Are you ready for a question this morning? May I ask you this one? Have you ever accepted a dare? Well, have you? How about a double dog dare? That defiant challenge. How, what about a triple dog dare? The ultimate challenge to do something shocking or incredible. The question is, how did that work out for you? At least sometimes dares turn out to be quite painful when we accept them. Are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole, that's dumb. That scar should know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah! Like double dog dare ya! Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally, the coup de grace of all dares, the sinister triple dog dare. I triple dog dare ya! Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. All right, all right. Come on, Karen. Oh, come on! Flick's spine stiffened, his lips curled in a defiant sneer. There was no going back now. This is next. And that pain is only the beginning. I hope that the double dog or triple dog dares that you have accepted were less painful than a tongue frozen to an icy metal flagpole on a cold December morning. But perhaps your dare was actually worse and had more lasting ramifications. Financial dares, legal Moral, familial, sexual, psychological, spiritual. Whatever it is or was, we all have something stuck frozen to the flagpole. It is our soul. And it craves to be unstuck, free, and perfect. The question is, what does that mean? And what does that actually look like? I invite you to explore with me today why the soul needs freedom and blessing, the obstacles involved, and the means of securing freedom and blessing for our souls. Well, let's run it up the flagpole and see what happens. The irony in the Christian, uh, in the Christmas story, flagpole dare is this. The flagpole's very purpose was being undermined. It was never intended to hold tongues. Let me ask you, what is the purpose of a flagpole? Right. A flagpole has only 
one real purpose, to hold up or display a flag. For instance, holding up the flag of the United States of America, which in part symbolizes certain freedoms associated with the country. Flagpoles are not meant to be symbols of enslavement, of frozen tongues or frozen souls. So when we speak about the soul needing freedom, just what do we mean by that? Freedom from what and freedom for what? To get there, we need to spend a few minutes reviewing how our souls began and what happened to them or to ourselves. Things started out well for the first human souls created by the Lord God. In fact, we read in Genesis, God created man in his own image. In his image, he created them, male and female. He created them. So our first parents began as souls of the highest caliber, having immediate fellowship and perfect relationship with their creator and with one another. They took care of the garden and animals, and they were free, really free to eat from any tree of the garden except for just one, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, we know the rest of that story. They ate the fruit which ate at their souls. The division between the Lord and his creation has been clearly evident ever since. It's affected everyone, and it's affected everything. Let's take a closer look now at how the the soul is now stuck, yielded to those obstacles that prevent real freedom and right relationship with God, with others, even with ourselves. One way is to imagine with me, if you will, three levels where the soul gets trapped, represented by these three concentric circles moving from the innermost to the outermost circle. John Ortberg, in his book, uses this model. I'm using it in inverse ways. I want to begin with the ultimate problem, and that is at the core, what's called original sin. This is the explanation for why we sin or make mistakes or fail in the first place. It's just part of our fallen condition, begun so long ago in the garden. We're in total need because of that of God's grace and forgiveness due to humanity's fall from grace and then our brokenness and leaning towards sin thereafter that really flows through our very veins. It was our first parents and after the disobedience of their heart and their hands, it's followed through us. At our own core, the natural inclination towards sin is deeply embedded in our souls, and it is literally killing us. We cannot change this condition, but we can free our souls from its power over us, as the Switchfoot song earlier, Free, done so well our worship team claimed. We discussed just how this this freeing of our souls happens a bit later. Second, then, in the middle circle is sinfulness. Get the idea of the whole depth of that term. Sin, what? Fullness, the fullness of it. Well, this really means our orientation in each of us, our deeply entrenched patterns that we have now that are just below the surface, sort of like a disease that sort of leaks out of us without any effort, 
like a habit I cannot control. Nasty attitudes, constant ingratitude, and the like. Let's talk about habits for a moment and hear from some well-known figures on that matter. Let's lead off with Ortberg's statement that sinfulness is the habit of sinning. Habit. And he also states that a habit is a relatively permanent pattern of behavior that allows us to navigate the world. It's something that is a worldview continuation. It's what we normally do. It can be broken. Notice it's relatively permanent. Let's go back a few millennia before to the great philosopher Aristotle who said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act but a habit. Coming a little bit closer to our time, William Shakespeare, the bard himself, said this, How youths, how use doth breed a habit in a man. The over-continuation over and over and using of certain things that breed the way we are. And then finally, Nathaniel Emmons, eminent theologian, years ago. Habit is either the best of servants or the worst of masters. Well, good habits are freeing. Consistently practicing spiritual disciplines like prayer, like giving of ourselves, like secretly serving others, and so on. But bad habits cause our souls really to lose their freedom, consistently overindulging or becoming addicted. The Apostle Paul was quite familiar with this habitual level, especially in terms of sinfulness, which he writes about, and he confesses his own struggle with this in the New Testament letter to Romans. Let's take a look at this. In Romans, what we call chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, he speaks about this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. I'm sold into slavery under sin. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I want or do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it's no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh or sinful nature. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then, with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. Well, thanks be to God, the Apostle Paul's primary message in here is the solution to our stuck souls, Jesus Christ. Even so, Paul's theology of sin is hardly some candy-coated version. He never candy-coats our sinfulness and our tendencies toward the wrong. Rather, our fallen human nature, including Paul's own, is on full display. This most prolific author of the New Testament scriptures, he would not make it on the New York Times bestseller list today. Now, because he has no interest in unsound teaching or in tickling our ears with what we want to hear in accordance with our own desires. 2 Timothy chapter 4 in the scriptures is a reminder that that will happen in the end times. Gathering up people that will tell us what we want to feel, what we want to hear, rather than the truth. Instead, Paul makes it clear that freedom of the soul is not easy to come by. Self-help, diets, pep talks, or owning the newest or latest or greatest, none of that actually frees the soul. There's an ongoing struggle in the human mind and the will. And you know, pretending otherwise solves nothing. In fact, it makes us less authentic and less real. Pretending makes us more like Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, who creates a self-destructive fantasy to cope with this situation. Pretending makes us less like the skin horse who tells the velveteen rabbit, once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. Should we not follow Paul and the skin horse instead of Willie and start by freely admitting the struggle in our own lives? In that way, then, we begin taking the steps, the right steps toward freeing our souls. For Jesus followers, new habits or care or cure of the souls involve these kinds of things. Certain activities, such as confessing sins one to another, praying together and for each other, studying the scriptures together and coming together as we have today. Throughout the centuries, thoughtful, circumspect Christ followers have practiced these Jesus habits for their souls. The third circle in our concentric circle diagram represents sinful acts or just simply sins. These are particular behaviors such as lying and cheating, gossiping, stealing, other selfish acts. Ortberg reminds us that we're able to commit these sins every day without remorse thanks to a tool which we could not survive without, denial. At the same time, the soul cries out to be free. However, Christianity is often perceived as a religious enslavement. And even Christians can tend to adopt the freedom-to-do-my-own-thing view of life. For example, I give God Sundays, well, Sunday mornings, well, sometimes. 
but the rest of the week is mine to do whatever I deem to do, whatever I want. On the other hand, there's an opposition to this antinomian sort of lawlessness spirit or the idea that it's all about what I choose. The other end is legalism, and it has its implications as well. Consider Philip Yancey's own experience spoken about in Ortberg. Philip Yancey, author of What's So Amazing About Grace, writes these interesting words in the dealing with the pain of his church's legalism. I came out of a southern fundamentalist culture that frowned on co-ed swimming, wearing shorts, jewelry, makeup, dancing, bowling, reading Sunday newspapers. Alcohol was a sin of an entirely different order with the sulfurous stench of hellfire about it. No short skirts for women, no longer hair for men, no polka dots on dresses for women because that might draw attention to suggestive body parts. No kissing, no holding hands, no rock music, no facial hair. It all calls to mind the dog who thought his name was No because that's the only word he ever heard from his master. My similar experience goes back to many, many years ago, legalism in a community back in Southern California. And how I learned deeply about that was the preaching of this phrase, seminary is cemetery. You go there and die. Well, I'm still kicking, but the truth is there was fear that was involved with the idea of learning anything outside of that small, well, growing now community of believers. Serious about loving Jesus, but anything but serious about growing in knowledge, growing in understanding, and trying to transform the culture, the community. And I learned that primarily in a very stark way when I decided with my wife it was time to go to seminary. Of course, that's not what you do in that culture. And I was uh, in a cafe owned by that particular church. And I'll never forget going into the cafe to get something to eat, and three people, two I knew and one I didn't know and didn't recognize before, were standing there waiting for their order, and I had just walked in. And one of them I had uh, association with through teaching at that school's little Bible school for years. Uh, the uh, person in the middle I knew from the Christian Research Institute, uh, an assistant there at this parachurch organization, giving people reasons for faith. And the other person I had no idea who they were before I was introduced uh, turned out to be a, an apologist for the Christian faith with a stack of books under this arm, but of a kind of apologetic that fit only one narrow stream. And so when I walked in and, and said hi, we did our uh, courtesies, um, Carl asked, the one I knew from the Bible uh, school, so what are you up to these days, Steve? And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to say that word seminary, and here it comes. So I did. I said, oh, I'm excited because I've signed up. I'm ready to go off to seminary, right up the street, Fuller Seminary, beginning this fall. You would have thought that really was the end of the world at that moment. The reactions were, oh, no, Steve, why would you do that? Everyone who goes there gets tainted and loses their faith. The second person came up and gave me a big hug and sort of cried a little bit. But the third one was the most interesting, someone I didn't know before, as I mentioned. 
still holding a large stack of books, looked at me with this face and said, hmm, the only question I have is why would you want to do the Lord's work in the devil's backyard? Well, this was a Christian, evangelical, statement of faith, quality, Nicene, creedal, community. And of course, that wasn't understood. So the legalism was extraordinary within that community, having to hold to only its view of all of life. That's a real problem. This even has happened in history with Calvin's Geneva. The great theologian John Calvin uh, was asked to virtually conduct the affairs of the city for a time. And he instituted uh, some tremendous uh, changes, but one of those even included that you could not name your child after anyone other than an Old Testament figure. There was to be no carousing, no dancing, no art to speak of. So again, a real dramatic way of legalism. So we have the extremes of antinomianism, no law, legalism, law without love at times, and neither one of those are really obedience. Because when we get down to it, in truth, it's obedience, but real obedience that produces freedom, not legalism and not antinomianism. For Israel, for example, remember the Ten Commandments. They were never designed to be a standalone list of rules. It wasn't about just obeying because there were ten rules that were out there given by God. These came with a relational contextuality to them. In Judaism, they're not even called the Ten Commandments. They're referred to as Asheret Haravarim, which means ten utterances, speeches, or statements, because they're centered in God's design for human beings, who we are, who we're meant to be, at least, in relationship to God and others. Ortberg rightly says this, that's why we don't so much break the Ten Commandments as we break ourselves when we violate them. They're just good for us. They're just right for us. Well, the people of Israel had just left the slavery of Pharaoh and Egypt when they received these. Now they've been liberated by the Lord God and bound to his rule for that community and for the individuals. But is this just another type of bondage? Or is this now real freedom? Freedom for obedience. Freedom for a real way of life as God knows how to live it. Let's explore this concept of freedom a bit to see how this works. There really are two main types of freedom. First, there's freedom from external constraints. Ah, get free. Second, there's freedom for living the kind of life we were made to live, becoming the person we most want to be. Our culture craves which kind of freedom? Pretty obvious. Oftentimes you see this in law-breaking in terms of the law of the city, the law of the state. Our culture craves that. Freedom from external constraints. The speed limit is a prime example. We never speed in here. I know we all fully hold. Well, maybe a few, well, maybe one. Right. So we're not too good at following 
laws that we feel are somehow unjust or somehow hold us back from what we need to do. So external constraints, freedom from those, they appeal to us. They appeal also sometimes to that sinful nature or what we think is right and wrong. That doesn't mean all laws of the state or culture are right. But as Orberg says, I don't believe this is what the soul needs, freedom from. For example, consider the illegal use or abuse of things that we say we're free to participate in. Alcohol, drugs, weapons, certain laws, power, money. Remember, these all have high costs associated with them when they're used and abused. For instance, the legalization of marijuana in Colorado. It's having these negative, unanticipated consequences across neighborhoods, dividing neighbor from neighbor because of the wafting and other parties, and et cetera. On the roads, with the extraordinary increase in number of automobile accidents due to that, and in many other ways. It's even having an effect on voters in other states with similar ballot measures two days from now. So the consequences of all sorts of these freedoms we named are enormous. It seems there's always a cost in our fallen world for exercising these so-called freedoms. Here's why. Because it always affects relationships with others. And especially with the holy other, that is, the creator of our very soul, who longs for us to trust him as our soul's redeemer as well then how do we get the freedom that our soul craves? This is the great irony about spiritual freedom. To become truly free, like the song said, you need to surrender. I need to surrender. But surrender is not a popular concept at all. It goes against everything we think we know about being free. But surrender is the only way to achieve freedom for our soul. Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program begins with these first three steps. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, thus admitting we lack the willpower to quit drinking and need to surrender our will, freedom, to a higher power. This means admitting that I'm not the center of the universe, master of my own fate, or captain of my own ship, or God forbid, God himself. True freedom comes when you embrace God's overall design for the world and then your place in that, his perspective. So God's law then is given to us not to force us to obey, a list of rules, but to free our souls to live full and blessed lives. No wonder then that the Bible connects God's law, God's ways, God's perspective, and God's truth with soul freedom. The psalmist in 119.29 declares, Your decrees, your laws are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. In James, in the New Testament, we read about being doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. 
And look down at the final verse. But those who look into the perfect law, that is the law of liberty, the law of Christ, the relationship with God, and they persevere, being hearers, not being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. And then in Galatians, probably the most straight-on connected verse to our discussion. You, my brothers and sisters, says Paul, were called, how? To be free. It's our calling. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, the entire law, is fulfilled in keeping just this one command, love your neighbor, love others as yourself. Wow. Sums it up well. But the famous passage of the Bible we often see popularly associated with this idea of freedom is this. The truth shall set you free. (laughs) However, it's really only part of a single sentence uttered by Jesus, which is wrongly taken out of context for all sorts of things. And for instance, it's, <laughs> we see it popularly used for anything, in any context, by anyone to support any ideology about any's version, anyone's version of the truth. But Jesus was talking about something much more particular and based on something much more fundamental to life. Let's see what he says about being set free. In John 8, 31 to 36, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold my teachings, or hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's not a dependent clause what we hear popularly. Here it is. What's it dependent upon? Freedom is following the teachings of Jesus, following him, knowing the truth, being set free. Down below, very truly I say, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to it. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus Christ, the one who sets free. So it's only when we surrender to God and His ways that our souls experience that freedom that we crave for. We may stumble along the way. No one is perfect, but we do serve a perfect Savior who is patient, always ready to forgive us whenever we fail. Again, it's only through surrendering to God and to the ways of the Lord can our souls, ourselves, experience true freedom. Because freedom emanates through the blood and the love of he who sets free everyone who's captive. To those enslaved, in bondage, detached, isolated, burdened, and even demonized, Jesus himself is the great exorcist. And this all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So another question. Would you be free today? 
would we cry out to the Father of freedom? Would we be made free for the kind of life that you and I were made to live? And will we use our freedom for obedience? It's true. We hear this a lot. Freedom is not free. The paradox, though, is this. Our soul's freedom, our soul's freedom, only comes in surrendering, exchanging our soul's enslavement to sinful habits and human willpower to holy habits and the Holy Spirit's empowering. Then we'll be able to bless and be a blessing to others, saying with meaning this blessing of others with a whole heart. Will you join me as I read? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in prayer? The truly free one of all, we lay our lives at your feet today. We surrender. No need to fight because you're victorious. No need to lose because you have won the victory. We give ourselves to you fully now, God. We thank you for all that you've already accomplished to free our souls. Take us off the flagpole and take us into your presence. We ask all of this in the name of the one with whom we stand today in freedom. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.